Well, I survived the southeast. I went back home for the last couple days where people talk like me, although I don't have an accent. And they act like me, which is scary. And I came out unscathed. And that has zero to do with the sermon. But what I want to talk to you about is how many of you have seen the movie Moneyball? Oh, okay, okay, we've got some few folks. Nobody, okay, we've got a few folks. Oh, yeah, raise, don't be Episcopalians when you raise your hand. You've got to raise it up high, especially if you're on the vestry. Raise it high. So not many. How many people know the story of Billy Bean, if you haven't seen Moneyball? Billy Bean, anybody? Base, are there baseball? Who likes baseball? Okay, Astros. Let me just get a feel for the Rangers. Somebody else. Another sport? Okay. All right, so Billy Bean was the general manager of the Oakland A's, and he was uh, credited with really turning the program around. So I'm going to give you the quick snapshot of what the movie Moneyball talks about. He goes about uh, doing this in a way that causes so much uh, angst in the, uh, in the life of baseball because he does things that you wouldn't expect him to do, and he does things that aren't necessarily right in the eyes of people who are the holders of baseball. You know, the people in baseball who say, we've always done it this way. How dare you make a change? Now, we wouldn't know anything about that as Episcopalians. <laughs> but in baseball, they hold on to those traditions so tightly, and they forget why they do it. Well, Billy Bean challenges that because he becomes the general manager of a, of a franchise that is terrible. I mean, they were like the joke uh, of MLB. They, they would get pushed over, beat you name it. But he goes about building a staff, and particularly uh, one of his cohorts, who begins to get Billy Bean thinking about, or, or cast the vision, or Billy Bean cast the vision, and this gentleman makes it happen in practice, of getting runs. How do we get runs? He didn't care about getting the dynamic players that cost a lot of money, which is what baseball told him he should do. Go out, spend the money on a couple players who might hit a home run, once in a blue moon, but they're the dynamic players who will save the franchise. Well, they didn't have much money uh, in terms of other franchises. They weren't the Boston Red Sox. They weren't the New York Yankees who buy their World Series, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Anyways, so they had that kind of money, so they had to think more creatively. So they developed this idea of going and just getting runs, people who can get runs. They didn't care about the scouts in the same way. They wanted to know people who could get runs, and they developed an algorithm to, to, to evaluate players. It wasn't about the scouting reports the same way as it used to be, and, and Billy Bean got in so much friction, even with his own staff, that he inherited, particularly the scouts, who had been doing it 30 and 40 years, and they knew who a good pitcher was just by looking at them. But Billy Bean knew that something had to change. It couldn't be so subjective. It had to be a little bit more objective. And they developed the system, and sure enough, it worked. They started to get players, players that the, the league had said were down and out. They started to get players that people had said had no talent because they could get runs. Now, they didn't win the World Series. They didn't make it to the World Series, but they did get right up to the door. And they did this in a short period of time. And we're talking a season or two, they turned their whole program around uh, and became a team that was no longer the pushover. It wasn't the laughing stock of the MLB. 
they, they moved up from being like the Texas Rangers to being somebody else, somebody great, another great team. Just testing the crowd, just see if y'all are paying attention. I'm just kidding about this, folks. But anyways, they did. They became a great team because Billy Bean turned everything upside down. He turned everything that he had inherited, everything he was taught, he turned it upside down and looked at baseball completely differently. And this is exactly what Jesus has been doing up until this point in Matthew when it comes to the idea of the Messiah. Jesus has turned it completely on its head, completely deconstructed the idea that the Messiah is going to come with a militant army, with force and might and violence and vengeance. But the Messiah is going to come as somebody who's going to suffer and die to release people from themselves. And leading up to this point uh, on the mountain, which we, which we read the transfiguration, right prior to this, in chapter 17, you, or chapter 16, leading up to this point in the story, you have all these uh, wonderful exchanges between Jesus and Peter. One minute, uh, as you heard in the, in the gospel reading today, Peter professes Jesus as the Son of God. But then he, he says to Jesus, there's no way you're going to go and die that way on a cross. That's not what the Messiah does. And then that famous exchange where Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, like us, is holding on to what he wants the Messiah to be. But he's also holding on to his friend, his teacher. And he can't imagine the Messiah going that way or or acting that way. And then Jesus completely reshapes it continually through chapter 16, all the way up to this mountain. We climb the mountain. Peter, James, and John come, and Jesus goes up the mountain. And there he stands with Moses, the the, the figurehead of the law, and Elijah, the figurehead for Jews of the prophets. And there Jesus is, and the voice from heaven booms down, and it doesn't say, listen to Moses only or listen to Elijah. This Jesus guy is crazy. That's not what God says. God booms down his voice and says, this is my beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And all of a sudden, the whole story is thrust and twist on that moment that for Matthew's audience being highly Jewish, all of a sudden now, they have to begin to imagine interpreting Moses and Elijah or the law and the prophets through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the person of Jesus and what he's teaching and telling them, completely flips it upside down the way that they would understand this. Now, of course, these folks that have gathered and listened to Jesus are going to be some of the folks when he enters into Jerusalem a little bit later in Matthew's gospel are going to be shouting Hosanna. We're going to be those people shouting Hosanna in just seven weeks time when we gather on Palm Sunday. And then we will be the same people who will turn around and say crucify him in that same moment. Because he wasn't what we wanted him to be. He wasn't the Messiah we wanted. He wasn't the one to come and say that my life is righteous and their life is unrighteous. He wasn't the one to come and say to those who had been following the law so specifically that they figured it out. No, Jesus comes and he says two things of great importance. Love your neighbor and love God. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
And now God's booming voice from on high as the cloud overshadows the mountain says, we're supposed to listen to him. We're supposed to do that. And I think that in itself is the hardest part of being a disciple of Jesus, is learning what our job is. We spend so much of our life as humans trying to point our finger at somebody else, something else, as if their, their actions necessarily impact our salvation. Or that our job is to make sure that they have salvation because I'm righteous. If they're as righteous as me, then they're saved. When in actuality, what Jesus invites us to consider as he flips the whole thing upside down is learn how to be selfless, learn how to serve. He redefines the whole power structures of the world. Power is not garnered in violence and vengeance. All of a sudden, it's, it's captured in suffering and servanthood, selfless service to our brothers and sisters. Mind blown would be Peter, James, and John. So mind blown. Now, this is a typical human response to a powerful moment with the living God. What do they want to do? They want to stay on the mountain. They don't even want to bring the other nine. They're like, let's just stay here. They don't even want to invite the other disciples to come and join them. They're so immersed in this wonderful experience. Once they got over their fear, they want to stay there. They want to stay on top of the mountain. They don't want anybody else to come. They just want to live there as if that is the world in which God had called them into. That's why you have to love the disciples, because they're like us. They struggle just like we do. They hold on to things just like we do. They think they've got it all figured out just like we do, and at times they have to be reminded of their job, of what they're called to do, which is not to point the finger. It's not to create more division in a world. It is to serve. It is to go out and serve from a place of love. It is go out to, to help one another. It's, it's to go out and work on their relationship with God so that others can be impacted. The reality of the transfiguration for us really boils down to a question. How do we let God transfigure us? How do we let the life of Jesus transfigure us? How do we let the light into the darkness that lives within us? What are those things we hold on to so tightly because we think we have it all figured out and we build those walls and we push those people out? Those people, whoever those people are, because they're wrong and I'm right, because I am on, founded on tradition. And I have it all sorted out. I don't know about you, but I would be a little worried one day if I stand before God and say, God, I did everything because I was grounded in tradition. And I kept all of them out. I don't know what God's going to say to me. Actually, I do know what God's going to say to me. God's going to say, I love you. I love you. But you missed the mark. You missed the point but I still love you. That's grace. That's the free gift we find in the person of Jesus. That's the gift that Peter, James, and John saw before their very eyes, not as something to come, but something that happened on the mountain when the glory of God shone down and the voice spoke to everybody gathered in that place. Not as some distant thing, but as something that happened right there on earth on that mountain. That the glory of God is with us, not 
to becoming, but here. I think part of what we have to hold on to, what we have to really surrender ourselves to, is our role as disciples of Jesus, our role as followers of Jesus, of opening our hearts and our faith journey to others, truly being radical in our hospitality to our fellow brothers and sisters, looking out on this world and figuring out how we can bring the gospel to bear on those who are hurting, those who are trying to understand the loss of a loved one, those who are hungry, those who are searching, those who are angry at God, those who are angry at each other. How can our backs become the bridges of hope and connection in this world? How can we lift up our brothers and sisters for the sake of the kingdom? How can we be bearers of the light that God has bestowed upon us? The reality is every Sunday we gather here, we're on the mountain. Right now, you are on the mountain. When we gather around this table, I often say it, I don't say it enough, but I'm going to say it more. When we gather around this table, this is a mountaintop experience. For a moment, if only a moment, the veil between heaven and earth is lifted and thin, and we see the communion of saints of which we are a part of, the body of Christ which we are a part of. We come and we seek nourishment from this table. We look at our brothers and sisters gathered in these pews. This is our safe place to recharge our spiritual batteries so that we can go out and serve that we can go out and share everything about our worship and our liturgy. Those traditions that we hold on to so tightly and often forget why we even do them are all pointed to building us up on the mountain so that we can go down into the world, so that we can go down not to judge and condemn. That's not our job, to go down and spread the good news of love and life that we found on this mountain, that we found around this table, that we are the body of Christ. And there are people in this world who need to know what that is. And the only way they're going to know is not by us quoting scripture or by us reciting a prayer. They're going to know it because we entered into relationship with them. We were vulnerable, we were humble, and we served them. That is the reality of the gospel. And that is the hope of the transfiguration. As we gather like Peter, James, and John, looking at this powerful, a powerful example of God among us on this mountain. Of God among us on this mountain, right here, right now, that this has life and it has power. That we too have power and life, but that power That power is exercised and found in servanthood, in building bridges of hope and life and relationship in a fractured world. This is what we are called to do. This is what we do as a people of God. But it all stems from that question. Are you going to come down the mountain and share the glory glory of God with those that you meet? Amen. Please stand and join me in the Nicene Creed found on page 9 of your bulletin.
We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ,